So last week we talked about a gift that has been given that most people in this world have completely forgotten about. See, we have access to the most amazing gift ever. You have access to the secret sauce of life. You have access to the answer to this question. I wonder how God would live this life if he were one of us. See, the great news is that God did come and he did walk in our shoes. Now, I'm not perfect and you're not perfect, but we can look at the life of one who is perfect. See, we have the recorded words and works of Jesus Christ. And that's the gift. Have you ever thought about how amazing it is that you were born after the life of Christ so you could look back and say, this is how Jesus would live? It's an amazing thing. Did you know that we can trust the Bible? The Bible is one of the most, uh, really the most historically accurate thing that we have from ancient times. Now, academia believes in comparison, that they have a pretty good grasp of what happened during the Roman Empire and Roman history. They have a, uh, some good Roman historians that preserve that history for us, and they have some real reliable evidence. They have the work of Tactius. I, help me out with these names if you know. Tactius. Uh, so in those works of that historian, we have three manuscripts, and the uh, oldest being back from the year 900 AD. There's the historian Livy who has 30 manuscripts. This is where we get our history about the Roman Empire. There's 30 manuscripts that date back to the year 300 AD. We have Suetonius where there's 200 manuscripts that date back to 800 AD. Then we have Homer. He's the biggest one, the one that we have the most proof of what happened with all the Caesars and all the wars and all that kind of stuff. Homer has 643 copies of his history, these manuscripts, handwritten, handwritten manuscripts, and the earliest being 500 AD. But let's stack that up to what we have in the New Testament. We have 5,800 Greek New Testament manuscripts. Look at that in comparison. And that's just the Greek. In Latin, we have 10,000 manuscripts that tell us who Jesus was, who all these apostles were. We have 1,500 in Coptic. And if you were to take all these manuscripts and put them together, we have over 20,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. And the earliest dates back to the year 100 AD, 100 to 150 AD. See, the New Testament manuscripts were written within uh, the lifetime, some of them within the lifetime of those people that lived. To to give you a little perspective there, uh, John most likely died about the year 95 AD. See, this thing we call the Bible is a miracle. We have written evidence for Jesus, more evidence than we have for anyone else that ever existed. It's amazing. Think about this fact. And just in this last year, 20 million Bibles were sold. In comparison, the next bestseller in the list is Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, which sold uh, 400,000. Excuse me, that's not right. A lot. It was a lot less. That's right, 2 million. That's the number. I didn't write it down. I thought I could remember it. 2 million. 
Two million sold, whereas the Bible, a book written 2,000 years ago, sold 20 million. In fact, they don't even put it in the bestseller list because it would look very much the same every single year. In the 2017, the Gideons gave away 87 million Bibles, just themselves. See, the proof is in the pudding that the Bible is unlike any other book ever written. So you don't have to wonder what would Jesus do. You just have to look at what Jesus did. You know how Jesus would handle criticism. It's in there. If you want to know how Jesus would handle suffering, that's in there. If you want to know how Jesus would handle temptation, it's in there too. You can look at the words of Jesus Christ and the life of Jesus Christ and model your life after it. It's an amazing thing. Now, some of us have the temptation to say, oh, well, Jesus was God. His life was easier. He didn't have to struggle like I struggle. False. That's not the case. Because Jesus was, uh, because Jesus was not a Superman God. He wasn't just a God that masqueraded as a human, like Clark Kent masqueraded as a human, but he's actually an alien with superpowers. He didn't just all of a sudden shed that costume and reveal that he was super all along. No, he wasn't a fake human in disguise. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. And he allowed himself to be uh, tempted just like you and I are. He could have turned the stones into bread. He could have flew around instead of walked if he wanted to, but he didn't so that he could be our example. He restrained his deity until it was needed for the purpose of showing signs to further the kingdom of God. And even then, he made sure that it was directed by God and not himself. Isn't it exciting to know that you can have the blueprint for living? And his name was Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be silly for us not to follow it? Isn't that strange that it, we have to be convinced to be like Jesus? Sadly, so many of us are indifferent to the example that Christ gave us in his word. See, we say we love Christ, but would we really even recognize him? Some of us don't maybe even want to know what the example of Jesus is because we think we might have to change some things about ourselves. Because many of us, including me, love our sin. Francis Chan said this. He said, lukewarm people don't really want to be saved from their sin. They want only to be saved from the penalty of their sin. And that's the state of the American church today. We don't want to make sacrifices and change. We don't want actually what God offers in his word, the joy and the victory and, and the, the, the Bible calling us conquerors. We don't, we don't want that. We just don't want the penalty of hell. But God isn't interested in leaving you in your sin. Why? Because there's a better way to live. And the Bible assumes that if you are a believer, that you would be growing in your faith and using your gifts to further the kingdom of God. See, the life, death, and resurrection, and the ascension of Christ compels us to change. Remember the prophets of old longed to see the day that you are living in right now. They would have loved to know the story of Jesus. The, the only thing they had was just pieces of it and glimpses of it. Our children know more about his story than the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. They know the greatness of Jesus. 
If you're a believer, the angels are curious about what you have. Are you curious about what you have? Last week, we talked about that man who unknowingly lived with a 75-pound, $100 million pearl under his bed. And you have access to a far greater gift. And this gift should change you. Now, the Bible says this. Brace yourself. Okay, you ready? Is everybody sitting down? I don't want to knock you over. Romans 6 says this about who you are. The Bible says if you're a follower of Christ, the old you is dead. Ooh, man, that hurts, right? I don't want the old me to be dead. I've got thoughts. I've got opinions. I, I, I know how things should be done around me. I don't, I don't like people telling me what to do. No, the Bible says the old you is supposed to be dead. See, the you that you were before you were saved and the you that you are now should be different. You should be lining yourself up with who Christ is and chipping away at those things that don't look like him. If you've got an anger problem, you need to line it up with Jesus. So often we see that, uh, we see that example of Jesus flipping tables and we're like, yeah, it's okay to be angry, right? It's okay to, to shake things up every while, once in a while. But Jesus didn't do it for himself. The reason he flipped tables is because people were corrupting the church. So that anger that's in you and that bad temper that you have, we need to be chipping away at that because it doesn't look like Jesus. I like to draw with my kids, and I'm not very good at it, but I like to be creative sometimes. And if you were to ask my kids the kind of things that I draw, they'd tell you uh, a dog mowing the grass or a Norwal with a gun. If you don't know what a Norwal is, it's a unicorn of the sea. Get, get to know it. You should know better about what it is. Everybody Google it right now. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. But I, I like to draw weird things and express myself. But the one thing that I'm bad at drawing is hands. I'm terrible at drawing hands. There's always one finger that's giant and it, it looks weird, like a tentacle or something like that. And I'm bad at it. But I do know one surefire way to draw a hand. And it, coincidentally, it's the same way that I draw turkeys, right? I put my hand down on the paper and I trace it out, right? And that's what we should be doing with our lives. We hold up the example of Christ and we dive deeper into it. We look deeper into who he was in his word and dwell on who he was in prayer. And then we trace it and we change. Why? Because the old me is dead and I've got a new identity and I've got to live within that new identity. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says it a different way. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, if you're in Christ, you're meant to be a new creation, a different animal, not even the same species that you were before. Now, some people believe that you have to do that by your own power, and that's not true. I lived the first several years, probably eight to ten years of my Christian life, trying to force myself to be better and to be what God wanted me to be. But the fact is, God's the one that does it. You surrender to it. You allow him to make the changes that he wants you to do in your life. See, what I'm trying to say is the gift, this forgotten gift, 
the words and works of Jesus Christ. This gift should change you. Let's look at the second chapter of this letter written by the Apostle Peter. Uh, that's 1 Peter chapter 2. And that's what will be the rest of the time this morning. It tells us and spells us out some things that should change about who we are. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that this gift should change your appetites. It says this in verse 1. So put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. And then it says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. See, if you're dwelling in the presence of Christ, you ought to look different than the average American. Evil and lies and hypocrisy and jealousy and gossip, they shouldn't be words that describe you. See, when we become a follower of Christ, the Bible calls it born again. It's a second birth. And if you just became a believer, don't expect to be running around and doing somersaults and stuff like that. First, you have to start off with crawling. But if you're a true Christian, you ought to crave some things. You ought to crave the Bible, communion with other believers, worship, giving, prayer. These things that you had no interest in before you were saved, now you should desire these things. Desiring a connection with your father like a baby desires a connection with his mother. This verse says if you truly have tasted that God is good, your appetite should be different. Verse 4, it goes on and says, this gift should change our foundation. It says, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone who was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder rejected has become the cornerstone a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Right there, it tells us that Jesus was rejected by man, this stone, and he, uh, and the gospel and Jesus are going to offend people sometimes. But this is an awesome Bible illustration. It says, if you're a believer, then you are a house. And today, your life is built on some foundation. It's built on something. It could be your marriage, it could be your work, it could be your money, it could be respect. Our life is founded on something. And we as humans are great idol makers. We can make an idol out of anything, right? Hobbies, sports, even our kids. But any foundation other than Christ is shaky and dangerous. There's an old children's song, if you've been in church for very long, it says... Uh, tells us about the wise man that built his house upon the rock, the foolish man that built his house upon the sand, and the rain came down, and the foolish man's house went 
Squish? Is that how you guys sang it? It was splat for me. Splat. Foolish man's house went splat. But the, the wise man's house stood firm. And this song's based on the words of Christ from Matthew chapter 7. But the point is this. What is your life built on? See, the gift should be your foundation. It should change your foundation because Christ is the cornerstone, the stone that the rest of the, our life is measured by. And if you take that cornerstone out, the rest of it falls apart. Is that how you're built? What in your life, if it wasn't there, your whole thing would fall apart? Well, that just might be what your life is really built on. See, this gift should change our foundation. Next, it says the gift should change our citizenship. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 tells us you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may, uh, you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So not only should our appetites and our foundation change, but our identity should change. See, when God invited Gentiles into his family, he made a new race of people called the church. No matter our skin color, no matter our background, no matter our social or financial situation, if you are a follower of Christ, then we have the most important thing in common, and we are family. Our citizenship in heaven should trump any loyalty to any country or identity that we have. See, I'm not an American Christian. I'm a Christian. American. And once again, he calls us sojourners and exiles, aliens. Why? Because this is not our home. We're just passing through. We don't belong here. So we ought to have different customs, different priorities. The way we carry ourselves should be different. The way that we talk, it should change. People ought to be able to tell that you are different. At work, your character and priorities should be different. You ought to stick out like a sore thumb. Hey, he sells things a different way. He doesn't try and slip something by them or trick somebody into buying something. Hey, he does things differently. Why is that? Not for your glory to lift yourself up, but for God's glory. At school, you ought to stand out because of the way you talk and love the unlovable. Why? Because we have the words and works of Jesus Christ, and those things should change us. Jesus got criticized for who he ate with, who he befriended, who he talked to, who he prayed with, how many times he gave people chance after chance. He loved to be around people that hurt his reputation and his holy street cred. Is that true of you, or is there a segment of people that are like, I can't get around them? See, we should desire to be like Christ. And this gift should change our citizenship. Verse 13 goes on and tells us uh, that this gift should change how we view authority and government. 
Why? Because we have the example of Jesus and how he treated those in authority. He showed them respect, but his goals were different than theirs were. He wasn't worried about tax reform and employment rates or the NASDAQ. And we respect government, but our real hope is in Jesus. Verse 18 tells us that this gift should change how we view our workplace. For the follower of Jesus, the workplace is a place of worship. Why? Because the way you approach your boss, your coworkers, and your clients should stand in stark contrast to the unbeliever and the lukewarm Christian. Why? Because we know how Jesus interacted with people, and we love Jesus, and we want to be like Jesus. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 7 tells us that our gift that we have should change our marriage. Our marriages should look different. Why? Because we're supposed to love each other like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And people should see how much Christ loves them through our marriage and how much you love your spouse. What am I saying? I'm saying the gift is his presence and this gift should change us. To the early Christians, this was an obvious thing. That they were going to be different. When they made this commitment to Christ, their life was going to completely change because also what came with it was persecution. Maybe their family turning their back on them. Maybe leaving their home and going to another land. It was assumed that if you were a Christian, your life was going to be different and it wasn't a sacrifice because you got the best end of the deal. And that was Jesus. But now we have the tendency to ask culture what we should believe instead of the Bible. Francis Chan said this. He said, we live in a time when Christians need to be told that they're supposed to live like Christ. And that's weird. Let's not be the church like that. Let's search the Bible for how we should live. Let's live like Christ. Let's crave a connection with our Father. Let's build our foundation on Christ. Let's remember our citizenship is not here, but in heaven. Let's work to make sure the way that we view authority, work, marriage, line up, not with what's expected of us by society, but what is expected of us by God and the teachings of his word. The gift is the gospel. And this gift should change you. With every head bowed and eyes closed, I want you to do this little exercise with no one looking around. It's a time between you and God, a time to meditate and to pray and to think about what God meant, uh, spoke to your heart about. I want you to think back to this. I want you to think back to who you were before you were saved. For some of us, like me, I was eight years old. But many of us in this room were 15, 27, 42 Are you the same person you were? How has it changed you? Did it change you just originally in the first couple years of your salvation? Or is it still changing you today? If you're the same person you were five years ago in your walk with Christ, there's something wrong. If you can go back ever at any time and look at a place where you're closer to God, whether it was last year, two years ago, if there's ever a time that you are closer to God than you were and than you are right now. And there's a problem. The Bible mentions backsliding. That's what it means. It means going backwards. 
We don't want to go backwards. We want to grow and mature in our Christian faith. And that's what God wants for us. Not just so he can get us to do things. Too often that's what we just think about God, that he's just trying to make us do things. No, he tells us to do things because it's in our best interest to do those things. Why? Because sin hurts us. The Bible even says the end of sin is death. A marriage that is uh, doused in sin is going to be a marriage that's going to end. A relationship, a job, sin kills things. God wants to keep us away from that because it hurts us. It's not a fence that keeps us in. It's a guardrail that keeps us from falling off a cliff. So here's the question. First, do I have a relationship with Christ? Have I tasted of the goodness of God? Second, has this gift changed me recently? Has it changed how I react to things? Has it changed my priorities? Let's dwell on that for a few minutes. In silence. I know it's awkward. I know it's weird. We don't do this in society very often. But turn your mind on. Turn your heart on. And let God speak to you.